Letter from Helvetica, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. Chapter 8 Octopus's Garden. I bloody ask you, and bloody Foster's to boot! Although he has discovered that the local brew, a thing called Tusker's, is not at all bad. Our little poo-fed garden provides us with all our vegetable needs and the forest also yields the most wonderful fruit including papayas, oranges, mangoes and bananas. We even have a couple of our very own pineapple trees nearby that in theory produce fruit alternately each year, being as they are biennials. But of course you knew that. Sadly we won't be here next year to find out how the other one does. Perhaps we should bring it back with us so that it can be blessed at Beltane, hence ensuring its fecundity. Banana and plantain leaves make the most wonderful cooking vessels, I'll have you know, particularly if you want to wrap something to go in the oven. Beats the pants off aluminium foil, that's for sure. You can even use the leaves as plates, which we have come to do as standard practice. It saves on the washing up. Coconut and almond trees grow everywhere on the fringes of the interior. The ground is festooned with nuts, large and small, and you have to keep an eye open for the blessed things falling on your head. I got hit by an almond that had plunged from a considerable height, which blooming well hurt, so I suspect a coconut could do some serious damage. Potential for the perfect crime, perhaps. While I had expected to find coconut trees growing, I confess I was a little surprised to find almonds in such abundance. When I first brought some back to the house to show the others, Egbert smiled and said they are natapoa and pointed to the swing seat on the balcony. So that's it! The swing is made of nuts! Or, alternatively, I'm thinking, the swing is made of the wood of the almond tree. That's it. You can see how I've become such a highly respected research biochemy thingy. <laughs> the coconut trees harbour a most extraordinary creature that Egbert and Bettina were most insistent that we sample. The coconut crab. How did they come up with that name? Is a huge prehistoric looking cove. And when I say huge, I mean huge. Up to a foot and a half long, this is the Big Daddy, the Godfather, the Burj Khalifa of arthropods. It lives pretty much all of its life, apart from when it's a little baby crabette, on land rather than in water, which is pretty weird behaviour for a crab, although you ain't heard nothing yet. During the day, it burrows into the sand to stay moist and cool but at night it emerges to feed on the abundant coconut harvest. In truth, this crab will eat pretty much anything, including, according to conjecture, the corpse of Amelia Earhart, 
If it can't find coconut on the ground, nil desperandum, it will simply climb the tree and find some there. It opens them with its absolutely humongous claws, which really hurt by all accounts if it grabs hold of a bit of your anatomy, but which are also full of yummy meat, the extraction of which probably hurts them a bit more, to be fair. But these guys are also tactical. If for some reason they have trouble opening a coconut with their claws, they have been known to carry the thing up the tree to a great height just in order to drop it so that it smashes on the ground and gives up its contents. Even more amazing is the fact that even though they have taken an evolutionary detour, if you will, they are still crabs at heart and therefore need a damp environment. Despite that, some will risk the searing heat of the day in order to get ahead of the competition and reach the choices fair first. A bit like leaving an hour before the morning rush hour, I suppose. Painful, but often worth it. If it rains during the day, which it has a couple of times since we've been here, they will come out in their droves, which gives us a an opportunity to have a good look at them and b catch lots of them for tea. Catching them at night being something of a fag, what with the mosquitoes and the somewhat inconvenient darkness. Stephen has told us that because the coconut crab is such a novelty, there has been a big demand for them in the tourist hotspots of Efate and Espiritu Santo, and as a result, on many islands, they are more or less extinct. This is true of many of Vanuatu's other resources, which is why we at Planta Vida are looking for a sustainable approach. End of advert. However, the people of Babango have a wonderfully lackadaisical approach when it comes to exporting their resources, and as a result, the crabs remain numerous, so we can eat them relatively guilt-free. And they taste just divine. They are so big that there is a lot of meat on them, which is as sweet and luscious as any lobster. And so to fish. Did I already mention fish? Vanuatu is famed for its deep-sea sports fishing, but we only have an outrigger canoe with paddles and a very small sail, which is no ocean-going vessel, I can tell you. However, as luck would have it, once you have ventured just beyond the reef, there is a very steep drop-off, which means we are visited by a number of coastal pelagic species relatively close to the shore. Convenient or what? That means that we are able to feast on the likes of yellowfin tuna, kids vaguely surprised that this is the same thing that goes into tins, mahi-mahi, beautiful body, shame about the face, Looks like a very small, very pissed-off whale. And if you are quick enough, wahoo! Egbert tells us that we are bound at some point to catch a sailfish and possibly even shark. Blue marlin crops up occasionally as well, apparently, but he is adamant that we don't catch them as they are becoming increasingly rare. All of these buggers are huge and it does give me the heebie-jeebies when I see my man and the fruits of our loins 
bobbing off into the distance in a most insubstantial vessel in order to haul 20 pounds of flailing fish muscle over the side. That being said, everyone is very happy to leap off the boat into the sea from time to time, so Richard says that falling in isn't really an issue, is it? But then I say if you are fishing for shark, isn't jumping stroke falling in a bit of a foolish move? Mother is met with hoots of derision, naturally, but while being able to swim as well as the rest of them, I have always had what I like to think of as a healthy respect for the sea and some of the malevolent bastards that live in it. But what do I know? There are also fish living on and around the reef that are, in theory, good for eating, like mackerel, coral trout, parrotfish and snapper, and others with more exotic names, such as mangrove jack, green jobfish and giant trevally. <laughs> Sounds like a village near Helvetica but they are prone to giving you an extremely nasty dose of a thing called ciguatera. To explain, there are vicious little toxins called dinoflagellates that cling to coral and are consumed by fish that eat the coral, which in turn get eaten by predatory fish, which in turn are eaten by bigger predatory fish, and so on, until the poison bioaccumulates. The only way to avoid ciguatera is to avoid eating reef fish, which we do, although we learn that the people from the village do not, and simply accept that from time to time they are going to get a dose of it and get sick. I don't know if that's brave, foolish or just plain pragmatic. All three, I suspect, although it really can make you very sick indeed. It is rare to be killed by it, though, which must be a comfort to them as they're heaving their guts into a woven bamboo bucket. So that, dear uncle, is our hearth and home, which we have become most attached to in a very small space of time. It's not perfect, heaven knows. I mean, who would build an upside-down house and put the main cooking area outside, so far away from the main washing-up area in the kitchen? We've got round this eccentric design by doing our washing up in the shower, which may sound a mite strange, but isn't actually as daft as you might think. All of our food waste goes down the toilet to join the other composting gloop, so it's convenient that it's nearby. We don't use plates much because leaves are so much better, so all that is left is knives, really, and the odd utensil for prodding food. Oh, and the occasional mixing bowl and the extremely exceptional saucepan, a doddle. One of the elements of so-called Western civilization that we lack, and which I had anticipated I would sorely miss, is a washing machine. However, that too, we have largely got round in a mildly unexpected, although entirely pragmatic way, and indeed in typical Stotter stroke Wesley, not to say, as I am learning, Sivgovich style. On our first day here, after our grand tour of the house, the kids were absolutely dying to run off and swim, being the hot, sticky, tired little things they were. 
Egbert and Bettina assured us that the water of the lagoon is extremely safe to swim in, so the children sprinted off down the beach, stripped everything off as they are prone to doing when it comes to water, or you and your swimming pool's fault, and dived in, splashing and shrieking in a most well-deserved fashion. I am delighted that they are so bien dans ces peaux, although it does occasion the odd disagreement. I have, in the past, somewhat to their irritation, had to remind them that Godalming Municipal Swimming Pool is a public place, and as such, swimming costumes are compulsory attire, to which they have been known to posit the entirely reasonable question, why? And now, being strangers in a strange land, I was concerned that their behaviour might be seen as unacceptable, and I was anxious not to offend quite so early on. However, at that moment, the rib arrived back with our luggage, and my concerns were quickly assuaged, where Martin, seeing the kids in the water, stripped off his T-shirt, dropped his shorts, and dived into the water in a similarly au naturel state. As you say, this seems to be a German compulsion, but under the circumstances, it was actually rather welcome. It also strikes me as somewhat ironic that I, a caring and loving mother, should have actually been pleased that a grown naked man had jumped into the sea to join my equally naked offspring. Try explaining that to the Daily Mail. I thank you and no mistake. I felt the need to apologise to Bettina and Egbert on behalf of my progeny because I really had no desire to offend their sensibilities. Egbert simply gave his big smile and said that it was no problem for them and that it is okay on Babango. Probably not on other islands, he said, but okay on Babango. Bettina's smile was not, I noticed, quite as relaxed as her husband's. After their swim, the young ones didn't bother putting anything back on, just letting themselves dry off in the sun. Martin also stayed in the buff as he waded in and out of the water, helping unload our luggage from the rib, although he did dress again after they were finished. You were right about him rising in my estimation if he got naked. Thankfully, that's all that rose. For now, for now. Later, after everyone had gone and we had unpacked the basics, Richard and I took advantage of having a cooling, naked swim and found it much more comfortable to stay that way until we finally made it to bed to fall into an utterly knackered sleep. Since that first day, the children have pretty much refused to wear anything at all unless we have to leave the island for some reason. They put me in mind of Huckleberry Finn sailing with Jim upon their raft down the Mississippi and saying, if my A-level English doesn't fail me, we was always naked day and night whenever the mosquitoes would let us. And besides, I didn't go much on clothes, no how. I do worry a little about bites and stings and sunburn and so forth, but their bodies are already as brown as can be, and the mosquitoes are not yet a huge nuisance, given that this is the dry season. 
and we have all had our malaria shots. And Babango is thankfully short on other vicious beasties. I have to say I think it is rather splendid seeing their beautiful young forms at one with nature, as it were. It is most definitely the most sensible form of dress in this heat, and it seems ridiculous to try and give them any reason why they should do otherwise. They seem so comfortable and at ease that Richard and I have also taken to eschewing clothing, although not before I had a pretty long chat with Bettina. I have come to like her enormously and would hate to be responsible for making her time with us in any way uncomfortable, and I had sensed that she was not entirely at ease being surrounded with so many bare bodies. She was helping me put clothes away in the children's wardrobe on the day after our arrival when I asked if she had a problem with it. She laughed a bit and said that she had no problem at all with the children. Most of the children in Babango Village are naked all the time. However, she said that she was not so used to seeing adults wear nothing at all, but she understood that European cultures are different from hers and she was happy to welcome us to Vanuatu and she wants us to do here as we would at home. The unlikely image of me walking naked down the aisles of Waitrose back home flitted briefly across my mind, but I put it to one side. I commented that very little, if not nothing at all, did seem to be the most sensible dress here. She looked at me for a moment as if weighing me up and said that in the village in Babango, the women wear only grass skirts. She explained that breasts are regarded as pretty functional here, so can be uncovered, but the upper thighs are regarded as the very pinnacle of sexual allure, so must be concealed at all costs. The men, in turn, wear nothing other than the traditional number, a penis sheath that holds the penis in an erect position, leaving the scrotum exposed. Which begs the question, what exactly is the point? You have been listening to Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. The series is produced by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Tessa Crocker, Michelle de Souter, Bryony Kelly, Tracy King, Paul Morris, Triona Palmer, Laura Pinifay, Lee Pointer, Valerie Rolls, Julia Thurlow, and Andrew Ruff. And executive produced by Andrew Dyack, George Fairbrother, Edward Kellett, Sophie Pycroft, Amanda Rotherham, Kay Scoble, and Michael Seeley. Thank you so much for listening to Series 1 of Letter from Helvetica, which we are pleased to say will return. We're currently in pre-production of our second series, which we are aiming to launch this autumn. If you would like to support us, we are gratefully accepting donations via coffee.com. That's spelt ko-fi.com forward slash letter from Helvetica. 
And if you have enjoyed the series, please do leave us a nice review, which will really help us. Thanks again, and see you all again soon.